This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast, the show bringing you the latest news and insights into the world of life sciences. My name is Rhys Armstrong, your host for today's episode. Today I'm joined by Professor Saad Shakir, the Director of the Drug Safety Research Unit in Southampton, which was set up to protect patients from unwanted adverse effects of medicines that are currently on the market. During the coronavirus pandemic, the Drug Safety Research Unit has been active in launching a range of studies assessing the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines and therapies. Professor Shakir, first of all, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Just to start off with, can you uh, just give a brief introduction about yourself and the, uh, the DSRU, please? Well, I am a, a pharmacovigilance physician and uh, a pharmacoepidemiologist. I've been working in this field for more than 30 years. I've been the director of the Drug Safety Research Unit for 21 years, since 1999. Uh, the DSRU is an independent unit associated with the University of Portsmouth, which work on studying uh, the post-marketing safety of medicines and vaccines. We, as I say, we have been doing that since uh, 1981. We have hundreds of uh, studies covering a very broad range of medicines which have been used in the UK. And since the COVID pandemic, we have been very active in studying uh, the safety of vaccines and conducting risk-benefit evaluations and other kind of studies for medicines for COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I, I mean, being so active for so, for so long, as, a, as, a, as an organization, what was it like being presented with, with, with the coronavirus and the pandemic? Did you go about it as business as usual, or was there some other precautions you had to take? Why, well, like everyone else, you know, we were taken by, uh, somewhat by surprise, by the speed of how COVID uh, uh, sort of established itself, you know, occasional reports from Wuhan, the reports from Italy, how it came to Europe, and how quickly between January and March uh, the 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 pan you know the pandemic escalated and it was declared pandemic in in March twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. We as a unit, uh, which uh, whose mission is to study the 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 post authorization safety and medicines and vaccines. Um, knew or that this is within our mission, within our remit. And from really from April 2020, we started to have internal meetings. We started to observe very closely what's happening. And from May, June, when various companies uh, started to announce that their uh, vaccination development programs were ongoing, uh, we started to to think about how we can we study them, 
what are the possible methods and approaches and so on. Obviously, in the first stage, and when I say in the first stage and sort of Q2 and Q3 in 2020, there were so many uncertainties. Uh, what vaccines will come, how they will come, how will they all be used and so on. But we started to uh, develop uh, thinking and I established uh, uh, an informal team of pharmacoepidemiologists from around Europe to informally discuss the, the how, what are the best approaches and how we will handle that. And as things progress, we got firmer and firmer and started to write a protocol and protocols. And we started to, you know, when December came in and the first person was vaccinated, you know, our studies started. Mm -hmm. And did you ever expect those vaccines to come to market so quickly? Did you expect to have to start post-market studies? Uh, the, the honest answer is no. As everyone knows, it takes between 10 and 15 years to develop uh, a vaccine. A vaccine is, is a complex uh, product. You know, most of the medicines which people take are called small molecules, molecular weight below 50,000. They are chemicals, and producing them is a chemical process. Mm -hmm. Vaccine is a biological uh, process. Uh, it requires a lot of understanding of what is the pathogen, what is the virus. You know, there were remarkable things happened, which uh, in the history of science, they will be uh, noted. Uh, for example, the, the genotyping of the virus by a Chinese doctor was completed by January 2020, you know, when the virus just came in in sort of November, October, November, that is a remarkable feat. And mm -hmm. then all the, you know, the developers who were developing the RNA and DNA vaccines leapt on that and took that genotype and went very quickly to develop these vaccines. And I've always said, that with all this sadness about um, the, um, the, 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 the COVID, it came at a time when the genetic revolution and the genetic mechanisms for developing vaccines and medicines is really has progressed so well. So the development of the vaccine went forward in an impressively, an impressively uh, sort of fast pace so that we... Uh, had the vaccines not only developed, the initial first trials done, the results became available, and they started to be uh, available to people in December uh, 2020 and January 2021. That is a remarkable feat to shrink 10, 12 years development program to several months. Yeah, yeah, it, it's unheard of um, in the life sciences com community, but just what you're, you're, you're seeing there on, on a, the advances that we were able to do with um, the vaccines, would this have been possible, say, five or ten years ago? I don't think so. Um, I mean, we have been sort of, when I say we, the scientific communities have been developing uh, vaccines and viral vectors and so on in the last 30 years. I mean, one of the questions which uh, people are talking about you know, when you introduce a genetic material to a cell, should you do it with a inside uh, 
uh, a lipid nanoparticle as the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are, or would you do it through the a virus as the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines are? I mean, these discussions about these were really 30 years ago. People were thinking about how to introduce genetic material to a cell. And, uh, and for example, there have been concerns about the virus might, the virus vehicle might, you know, do some virus activities. There have been enormous amount of work to tame that, to attenuate that, to reduce that. So, uh, you know, the answer to your questions is, uh, you know, any, any time before, if this had come, we would have been less efficient and less far, you know, slower in doing it. So it came at a time when we are really in a good shape from the genetic and biotechnology development to leap on mm-hmm. it and, and develop it as fast. But still, even with that, focusing the effort was impressive. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just moving on to on to, on to your, your work within the, um, the Drug Safety Research Unit, in June 2020, you announced the, the Consortium for um, Monitoring the Safety and Effectiveness of COVID-19 Vaccines. And since then, like you said, you've been especially busy um, with some of the post-market research studies. What um, Could you just sort of go into what those studies en- entail and what type of data you, um, you, you look to garner from them? Well, um when when i said to you that since april 2020 we uh, started to think about preparing what kind of studies we need to uh, do for the monitoring of the safety of covid vaccines we came to the conclusion which is an obvious conclusion that there will be no study that will fit everything we need mm-hmm. what society needs is a range of activities you know, the spontaneous reporting of uh, suspected adverse drug reactions were there, and uh, we said that they needed to be enhanced, and they were enhanced. For example, the MHRA introduced elements of artificial intelligence and uh, enhanced IT to quickly process and, uh, and bring together spontaneous reports. We thought that is called passive surveillance. We needed to have active surveillance in that patients are recruited into studies and they periodically are asked whether they had an adverse event as opposed to the passive surveillance when they were told to report an event if you get it. Mm. With the active, you are sent a reminder in week one, week four, week 14 to say, did you have an adverse event? So we thought that was another method which is needed. The other study method is to use uh, electronic databases, which are uh, which are available. There are a lot of databases now available. I mean, when you go when you go to your doctor, he's putting your information on the screen while you are in the consultation or in the hospital. Mm-hmm. All that information goes to databases, which is available for researcher uh, uh, researchers for secondary use for research. We thought that these should be part of the of the portfolio, and we thought that um, adding some biological um, uh, testing for some of the patients who get adverse uh, events uh, where the source, the identification is from these studies. So we uh, thought that there is a, a, a portfolio needed. 
And one of the big studies which we are doing is this active surveillance for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and that is uh, quite a big study and it's ongoing in the UK. But also we are involved with several studies on the secondary use, doing database studies for the safety of vaccines. And that's part of a European consortium we're involved with studies for the AstraZeneca vaccine, for the Pfizer vaccine, for the J&J vaccine, for the Moderna vaccine across Europe. And we do the part of the secondary databases on a part of the studies if the, if the vaccine is used in Europe, uh, if the mm -hmm. vaccine is used in the UK, sorry. So we are part of the uh, portfolio and also we are doing risk benefits evaluations and commenting on issues. For example, when, when the issue of um, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia occur, you know, the clotting with, um, yeah. with the AstraZeneca vaccine or the inflammation of the heart muscles, myocarditis and pericarditis with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, we evaluated the available information. So there is a range of um, uh, available information from spontaneous reporting. So there is a range of post-authorization safety activities. They are not competitive. They are not mutually exclusive. They are and have been complementary. Mm -hmm. And just your, you're seeing there how you've commented on, say, the, the adverse effects of, of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, or potential ad adverse effects. Is there any discrepancy between, say, the available data that um, came from uh, came from, say, AstraZeneca's uh, uh, studies? Is there any sort of um, worry from from your side about the current data available being a little bit too limited, and sort of how that reflects on the importance of these post-market or uh, studies? You're talking about the information available from the sort of pre-authorization studies from yes, the clinical okay. trials. Yeah, I mean, by its nature, um, rare or very rare events occur when very large numbers of people receive them. Mm -hmm. And as a society, uh, you know, decisions were made, and very rightly so, uh, that uh, these vaccines will be available on temporary licensing with the information that was put together in you know, a 25, 30, 40, 50,000, and that these numbers will allow you to detect adverse events of certain frequencies, not rare, very rare adverse events. And also you're monitoring for two months because that was the period on which these studies reported. So two things. The limited duration, we're now noticing that it's not that, it wasn't that big limitations because most of the adverse reactions which occur subsequently, whether it's the clotting, the Guillain-Barre syndrome, the myocarditis, all occurred within the first two, 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 two months. So the missing, right. the missing didn't, not a lot of missing uh, adverse events happened. The, the thing which happened is the events which uh, were rare and you couldn't detect with 20, 30,000 people became apparent as we'd expected mm -hmm. when you start to use, uh, when the vaccines start to be given to 
hundreds of thousands or millions. So we, we knew that we are capable of identifying the events that occur within the limitations of the clinical trials by way of numbers and by way of duration. So the fact that we discovered rare adverse event, uh, reactions which were not detected, then it's not a surprise. That is just the simple game of simple mathematics. So you, you mentioned earlier about um, this, this reliance on, on, on people and providing <coughs> adverse uh, events. Is there any worry on, on your part about the reliability or how often they, they report? Well, I don't know whether I will um, call it uh, reliability, the word which we use in the jargon is bias, in that we advertise widely for people to um, um, contribute to these studies, and we accept that there will be people who may not be able to contribute, for example, the very elderly, mm-hmm. or people who don't have access to the internet, and, 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 and that's uh, there are special groups. What we do is when we will have the final um, participants in the study, we will relate this to the profile of the UK population. So we'll see the age range which we have, how much it mirrors the, uh, the, the age range of the UK population, and the same thing with the social economic classes, with the postcodes and so on. So like all epidemiological studies, we will represent the picture that was provided by the participants of our studies mm. and compare it to the whole uh, population and comment on if there are any discrepancies which impact on the interpretation of, uh, of these studies. And that is how science is do- does. If, if, if there is, then in the discussion in, uh, of our study, we will um, talk about how we, what solutions we want to, to provide. For example, we highlight other studies which may have had representation of the patients who are missing in our studies, mm-hmm. that we'll see what was found in them. And they, the authors of those studies, may use our study to fill any representation gap to, to in the discussion to say that it may it fill uh, any representation gap which they have in their studies. It's a whole picture. No one will be able to have 100% representation. That, the system doesn't work. Yeah. And for example, we don't know. We have some ideas now about the characteristics of the people who are vaccine hesitant or anti-vaxxers, they won't be included in our study. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we will, we will study these because these may have an impact. Uh, so when you do an observational study, like you, people take the vaccines and we study them, we are as good as the picture of those who are taking the vaccines, and our job is to describe it accurately. Right. Thank you. And just going on to the topic of vaccine hesitancy there, is there a role that these observational studies can play in potentially sort of helping sway people's opinions? Well, um, it's quite interesting because when we put uh, an advert for our study for people to be enrolled, 
you know, I've just seen last night a uh, uh, one of our promotion, uh, uh, you know, inviting invitations for people to be included in the study. You know, there were mm -hmm. 5,000 comments on Facebook and it had the range of views on the society, on people saying how it's great, how it's important, how it's complementary. And there are people who say, oh, right, so this drug wasn't studied in the clinical trials. You're doing it now too late and all yeah. that stuff. You know, you get, you get, you get that, and that is a society uh, that, uh, uh, not us. And in fact, uh, I would suggest that the person who is vaccine hesitant, you know, to take the vaccine and ensure that it's being monitored because they are hesitant because they think it might reduce some negative effect. And this is exactly what answers their question. But they, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I'm not a social scientist. I, I mean, I, I don't want to, to, to jump into the water of uh, the background of vaccine hesitancy. But I hope because we are producing interim reports, we are communicating from the studies, we frequently tweet and so on. So the information about the initial safety of these vaccines, and they are remarkably safe. If you let me, I'll come to that point later. Mm -hmm. uh, these will reassure that hesitant people. I mean, I, I'm now saying to people, hey, there are 33.5 billion people in the world who now has the first jab. So we're not talking about something which is abstract in the future. Now we're talking about nearly half of the population of the world who already have it, and none of them developed a second head or a sixth toe or, or all these obscure reactions which people are talking about. Now, you know, as we were talking earlier, in March 2020, we, there was a lot not to know, which we didn't know. Now, we don't know everything, but there is a lot that we know. And we know so far vaccines have been remarkably safe. I mean, this is actually, if when the story is going to be written in history, how safe these vaccines are compared to what they could have been is remarkable. And the other point which I'll add, and how efficacious, because you may remember, there was a figure of 50%. FDA and other agencies said, we will authorize these vaccines if they are 50% efficacious. Mm -hmm. They are between 65 and 95% efficacious. So actually, you know, the pleasant surprise is that they were f far more efficacious than, than expected. Flu vaccine is near up to 50% efficacious. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, and you know, this, this is a story on how eff efficacious they are and how safe they are. And I know the last point, which I have to say, and they are immensely eff efficacious as regard to deaths and hospitalization. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was looking yesterday at areas in, in, in the UK, in London and so on, where people are under-vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, 88% of the UK population had the first jab. There are parts in, in London where 64% of people had the first jab and less than 50% of people had the second jab. Remarkably, how few deaths, because the people who have the two jabs are the older, the vulnerable, the people with concurrent illnesses. 
So the success of the vaccines in preventing deaths and hospitalization is remarkable. Yeah, yeah, the data shows. Um, and now when we're seeing hosp- hospitalization reports, it's, it's largely for those who have been um, who have not been vaccinated. Yeah. Um, but just onto, onto a little bit of the safety, well, because um, the DSRU has now launched um, studies into the vaccine side effects, for instance. So you, you are really committed to, to, to understanding, you know, how these vaccines work. Um, and, and recently, you, you um, the organization has spoken uh, spoken about sort of um, the need to understand how COVID-19 vaccines affect immunocompromised patients as well. Yes, yes. Y- yeah, could you just um, go into that a little bit for me? Well, um, yes. We have done a review. And immunocompromised patients are of two types. Those who have, if you like, biologically uh, immunocompromised, immunocompromised because of a condition they have, like people who have HIV infection or Mm -hmm. people who have, um, you know, other kinds of uh, immunocompromised states biologically. And then the people who take medications uh, because the conditions require them to be immunosuppressed people with organ transplants, people who have various uh, um, conditions which require inflammations, whether it's a lymphoma or rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. So these are, and and these are, you know, the question is, will their immunocompromised state would make them less less protected by, by the vaccine? And the review which we have done is variable, but it shows yes, some cases showed minimal uh, negative effects, others showed significant effect. Uh, and so these people are not as protected by vaccines as they uh, need to be. It's a very complex situation because there's several levels of immunity. There is what is called the innate non-specific immunity, interferons and so on. Then there is the two types of immunity, the beta cells, which produce the antibodies, and the T lymphocytes, which produce the cellular immunity. And we need all the threes. And the ones which is measured widely is the antibody. And the antibodies have shown that, you know, they are not always high. And sometimes they are distinctly low in people who are immunocompromised. So the... Guidance in the UK with the with the opening of the <clears throat> with the re- removal of the restrictions by law on the nineteenth of July, the government simultaneously issued guidance to uh, vulnerable and immunocompromised people, which advised them more or less to continue shielding mm-hmm. uh, in in slightly milder form, but if you can. You know, they're advising people, you know, you now can go to work, but apply the precautions for these people to say, don't go to work unless you have to. Don't mix with people in indoors, really keep it to the very, very minimum and and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the advice at the moment for these people is to continue uh, to to have, um, um, you know, shielding, trying to get somebody to shop for you and so on and so forth. And and I think that this group has not been treated as well as the others. You know, there is no wide testing of the antibodies. 
unless you do it privately. Some people are doing it on occasional patients. There has been talk about them needing a third or a fourth jab to ensure that you keep giving them the, the stimulation, whether it's a RNA, DNA, or virus vaccines, until they get acceptable antibodies. So this, these, groups of, these, 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 these groups of people are, are really uh, need to uh, be protected and they will benefit from the general reduction of circulation of COVID and virus in the society. Uh, but we need to have focused strategy on how to protect them to the maximum. Yeah, of course. And um, just to finish off, uh, I'm not sure if this is even your area, but considering the, the large amount of studies uh, um, you've, you've undertaken, how how long will it be until we truly understand, say, the full biological effects of COVID-19 on, on patients? Oh, dear. How long is a piece of string? You know, we, we have understood a lot, as I said, we are now far more informed than we, we were a year ago. Uh, but there are areas which we will continue to understand. And it will take, some of them will be months and some of them will be years. I mean, it, this is a, a new coronavirus, a new COVID virus. It, it's going to be with us for many years. And we will understand more to a certain extent you know, that intense period of scientific output, which we included, that resulted mm -hmm. in getting the vaccines in nine months, the medications, you know, remdesivir, dexamethasone, and so on, all occurred within less than a year. Now the scientific process is getting back to more, more or less to its usual pace, not as usual, it's a very fast version of its usual pace, where you study something, right. you think about it, you publish it, you tweak it, people comment on it. Yeah, we will, we will, we will, we will, we will know more. And, and that is how science works. And that will benefit COVID and COVID vaccines. And as we said earlier, will, will, will benefit other vaccines. I mean, people are talking using their uh, vehicles for the COVID vaccines, for vaccinations, for things like malaria. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, both the companies BioNTech and AstraZeneca, uh, yeah, AstraZeneca, or Oxford, Oxford and BioNTech, they have projects for using mechanisms similar to the ones which they use for COVID to provide a vaccine for malaria and other conditions. And people are talking about these mechanisms used to get vaccines for some cancers. So, you know, get a fallout from this. But the process, yeah, yeah, I think some things which we'll understand in the immediate and short terms and others in the medium terms and few others, I would say, in the long term. But I think we mm -hmm. are in a good place. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, that's, that's good to hear from you. Professor Shakir, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, is there anything else you'd like, you'd like to finish on? No, thank you very much. Um, that was very good. I enjoyed it. Thank you.